Well, here comes our mystic guide out of the desert from his week-long silence, listening to the one true God who talks to us, who we talk back to, <laughs> who we uh, pray for, who is the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ only had one Father, and he was the only begotten Son of God. That's all you have to remember. Keep this Bible and these scriptures that simple. But when you start chasing after other gods, then things start to fall apart. And that's what this series is about. If you were with us in the last series, I urge you to look at the mystical voyage com and in the lower left part is called the Mystic Academy and it has the idolatry part part one and part two part two we showed how idolatry how it crept in to Israel's life and their idol worship mostly Samuel and then it's started the five stages of being led into captivity. What I'm going to teach today is part two, how idolatry causes a country or civilization to be led into captivity. And the three examples I'm going to use or I do, I'm using is Israel, Rome, and America, for example, as Western civilization. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is just a a, a, a time for realizing that the secular world is not the cause of this idolatry. It's the religious world. And the religious world, the biggest form of idolatry, the biggest hoax perpetrated upon all of these religions is the Trinity. And I think you can see it all over everywhere that they are worshiping a false God. Dala Gai Haim, Thera B. Sakai Vahi Hai, Enelaten Amenta Redio, Dunia Bara Mem Eka Andalana, Apake Safa 24 Gante Sangita, Liva Prasarana Bora Rahasyamaya Yatra, Dota Koma Para Isa Masia Ki Sixon Ki Lai Eka Rahasyamaya Dristakona Hai.
So welcome to Enlightenment Radio, all you in Bollywood. We've changed these hours, and I hope these hours will work out for you because it is a good time to hear the word, to relax it, and around the table with the family or friends. This is tonight, it's Idolatry Part 2. How idolatry causes a country or a civilization to be led into captivity. I use Israel, Rome, and America as examples. If you haven't read the first part, please read it first as it adds more scripture and clarity. These are on some pamphlets, but we're going to turn it into a documentary. The Trinity, rise and expansion, causing the five stages that are now leading us into captivity is the theme and premise of the group site. We must come back to the one true God. That's the only answer, that's the only thing that can solve this fall into captivity. America is rapidly falling, as you can see. We've accelerated our fall since the mid, since the Civil War, really. To come back to the one true God and renounce the Trinity, it's called the Whore of Babylon in Revelations, over and over and over. Now, what could that possibly be that's called the Whore of Babylon? And it has a city on three hills and seven rivers. That would be Rome. Two billion followers. Christians believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but the Trinity has not, is not just a doctrine, a theology, but a religion with over two billion followers. Remember, Jesus Christ said there would be many false Christs. Accurately, they say, or he said, there shall be many false Christians. Christians believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not God the Son. If you don't think the Trinity is a religion, just look at your church that you attend and read their statement of belief. It is usually first in order and priority. Then look at the triune architecture. How many things are in threes? May you find this site validates your Unitarian Christian belief, as thousands of others have. You're not alone. Agape. So, the true cause of the coming fall of America and Western civilization. It's a spiritual and not secularism. The five stages that lead us into captivity, what stage we're at now, and the one and only way to turn this around to save us. The three examples from scripture, from history, and from church councils, and from the false prophets and teachings, Israel, Rome, and America. Now, the five stages are captivity. I'm not keeping it a secret. I'm not holding back. I'm getting there. <laughs> Our nation and Western civilization is being led into captivity because of idolatry. And it's not the politicians, it's not the scientists, it's not the secular world. Money, power, let's get this straight. Money, power, sex, secularism, etc., fame, fortune, is not idolatry. Worshiping any other God besides the one true God is idolatry. See the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to read at the end of this 
some uh, sentences from Scripture that will absolutely seal up exactly what idolatry is, and there's no doubt about it when I get to that. The church, the primary cause is the church's false teaching, not secularism. The church has turned to idolatry by worshiping the three-headed God of the Trinity for 150-plus years here in America. The repercussions, primary result of this starting out as a doctrine when it becomes tradition in practice is the nation is led into captivity. This occurs after several warnings from God and is fully manifested approximately after three or four generations. Of this practice, a generation being 70 years, the Trinity is not a doctrine nor a theology. It is a religion, and it is a counterfeit one. The original founders, we call them our founding fathers, were all Unitarian, that means one God Christians, and not Trinitarians. This is why Trinitarians mock them and call them deists, or they, they're just followers of the history. They have all kinds of words for our founding fathers, but they weren't really Christians because they knew they weren't Trinitarians. So they had different names for them. They fled the tyranny of the Trinity from Europe in order to establish a nation free to worship the one true God. That's true. They were free to worship the one true God. You notice the first uh, amendment over here was freedom of speech and freedom of religion. First thing they got to. So they weren't free to worship the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. They were truly Unitarian Christians. Not today's Unitarian Universalists. Not Trinitarian or Deists as Trinitarians have labeled them. This is why God defeated our enemies, prospered us. He blessed us with the greatest nation on earth. Today, there are approximately 2 billion Trinitarians or false Christians in the world that Jesus warned us about in Matthew 24. We are in stage four. That's when I wrote this about two years ago. Now, let me correct this. We, have, we are in stage five. We're in the last stage before we get fall into captivity or led into captivity. I was giving myself some time. <laughs> and the middle of the third generation of being led into captivity as a nation and the entire Western civilization. There are several examples of this happening in past history. But the three major examples pointed out here will be Israel led captive into Babylon from the scriptures and the fall of the Roman Empire from written history records. Then the rise and fall of the one God Christian America. The five stages of being led into captivity are as follows. Number one, division to set up for conquest. You become divided. Number two, the abomination of the children, the ultimate sacrifice of weakening the next generation. Number three, the hordes of locusts, uncivilized enemies invade across the borders. Rise 
and expansion number four. The rise and expansion of sodomites is an omen of the near the end. It is a sign, a barometer sign, so to speak. When that happens, it's an omen that we are near the end of that civilization. And five is the loss of treasury, financial ruin, and collapse. So let's get into the fall of Rome. At one time, Rome was reached a peak of being primarily Christian. Not a lot of people know that. Let me uh, share with you a book. I probably will later in the writing here, but I'll share it with you now. It's called A.D. 381 by Charles Freeman. It's uh, Heretics, Pagans, and the Dawn of the Monotheistic State. It reads a little complicated, but he divides and he points out specifically the uh, councils and how Rome evolved downward from the Council of 381 A.D. That was the final blow to Christianity. These were called, you know, Catholic councils. In 381 A.D., Theodosius, emperor of the Eastern Empire, Roman Empire, issued a decree which all his subjects were required to subscribe to a belief in a trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The edict defined Christian orthodoxy and brought it to an end, a lively, wide-ranging debate about the nature of God. All other interpretations were declared heretical. So as they come upon this debate they're going to have, he said, you're already lost because I just made an edict that you're going to believe in the Trinity. It was the first time in a thousand years of Greco-Roman civilization that free thought was unambiguously suppressed. Today, this Trinitarian revolution has been airbrushed from the historical record. In other words, a Trinitarian doesn't even know how he came about the Trinity. But if you research the history of it, you wouldn't buy into it. So they kind of airbrushed it or passed in the history, rewriting history, its record leaving the Catholic, Protestant, and evangelical followers ignorant and blind to this ingrained false man-made belief as if it were actually scriptural. The decree, or the decree, excuse me, the decree was ordered just before the Council of Constantinople of 381, which all the bishops had no choice but to vote this writing as a final addition to the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325. That's when they declared basically Jesus was God, and in 381 they elevated Holy Spirit as the third person, which all bishops have no choice but to vote this writing as a final addition to the Council of Nicaea that declared Jesus as God. Now, they could compete with and rise above the pagan gods that were so ensconced in Roman tradition and religion have three gods in one trilogy of gods like every religion had before Babylon, Egypt, and Hinduism. What choice did they have? If a Christian refused to bow down to this new edict, they were killed, 
tortured, imprisoned, or excommunicated. The catacombs underground in Rome, which began as a hiding place from Roman persecution of Christians, was now a refuge from tyrannical Trinitarians who had free reign to persecute the heretical Christians. The empire had already gone through the first stage of division leading up to the Council of Nicaea that deceived or declared Jesus as God. See, they already had that one idolatrous council declaring Jesus Christ as God. So Rome, as much as they wanted to follow Jesus Christ, they were now had a council that led to the fall of Rome. The two councils that led to the fall of Rome, the Council of Nicaea. Let me give you this history. The first council of Nicaea was in 325 A.D., the first ecumenical council of the Christian church meeting in ancient Nicaea, now Iznik in Turkey. It was called by the emperor Constantine and an unbaptized catechumen who presided over the opening session and took part of the discussions. He hoped a general council of the church would solve the problem created in Eastern Church by Arianism, a heresy first proposed by Arius of Alexandria that affirmed that Christ is not divine but a created being. Pope Sylvester, I did not attend the council, but was represented by his legates. The council condemned Arius and the reluctance on the part of some incorporated the non-scriptural word homonosius, that's a Greek word, of one substance. This is the word that caused all the controversy. It's not in the scripture. Into a creed to signify the absolute equality of the Son and the Father. The emperor then exiled Arius, an act while manifesting a solidarity of the church and state underscored the importance of secular patronage in ecclesiastical affairs. The question forced itself upon the church through the teachings of Arius. He maintained that the Logos was the first of the creatures. The council attempted to, but failed to establish a uniform date for Easter. It issued decrees on many of the matters, including the proper method of concerning the proper right. Its council attempted but failed to establish a uniform date for Easter. It issued decrees on many other matters, including the proper method of consecrating bishops, a condemnation of lending money at interest by clerics, and a refusal to allow bishops and priests and deacons to move from one church to the other. It also confirmed the primacy of Alexandria and Jerusalem over all other sees or churches in their respective areas. Socrates, Scholasticus. Man, I wrote this and I'm sitting here tripping over my words. In the 5th century Byzantine historian said the council intended to make a canon enforcing celibacy of the clergy, but it failed to do so when some objected. Eusebius of Nicodemia, he died in 342. An important 4th century Eastern Church bishop 
who is one of the key proponents of Arianism, the doctrine that Jesus Christ is not the same substance as of God, and who eventually became the leader of the Arian group called the Eusebians. Eusebius may have had met Arius, an Alexandrian priest and originator of Arianism, and Antioch as a fellow student under the theologian Martin Luther, or as theologian and martyr, excuse me, of St. Lucian. Eusebius was successfully Bishop of Bertus, and about 318 Bishop of Nicodemia. In August 323, A.D., Arius wrote Eusebius for aid when his teachings were being investigated by Bishop Alexander. In support of Arius' cause, Eusebius appealed to the other bishops. When Arius was condemned in a synod of Alexandria in 3, September 323, Eusebius sheltered him and sponsored a synod in October of 323 at Bethnia, which nullified Arius' communication. Eusebius refused to recognize Christ as a being of the same substance, that's that word again, homo Uusian, with the Father, hence at the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, hence at the First Council of Nicaea in 325. He led the opposition against that term, and when the council finally accepted their clause, Eusebius signed the creed. He refused, however, to sign the anathema condemning the Arians because he doubted whether Arius really held what the athenema imputed him. Shortly after the council renewed his alliance with Arius, the Roman emperor, Constantine the Great, Constantine I the Great, exiled him to Gaul where he remained until he presented a confession of faith in 328. You see, these excommunications and these different methods of ostracizing these different bishops got to him after a while, and they wanted back in. Through his friendship with the emperor's sister, Constantia, he was probably responsible for much of the powerful Aryan reaction of the emperor's last years. His unrelenting harassment of the leaders of this Homoousian helped lead Constantine to depose and exile Bishop St. Anathias, the great Alexandria, at a synod in Tyre, T-Y-R-E, in 335, and to reinstate Arius at a synod in Jerusalem in 335. Eusebius was also favored by Constantine's son and successor, the pro-Arian Constantine, Constantinius II, was made bishop of Constantinople in 339. He presided over the synod in Antioch in 341, where a creed omitting this word, homosian, clause was adopted, and he probably died soon after. So the Nicene Creed, also called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, a Christian statement of faith that is the only ecumenical creed because it was accepted as authoritative and by the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Angelican, and major Protestant churches. The Apostle and Athanasian creeds are accepted by some, but not all, of these churches. Until 
early 20th century, it was universally assumed that the Niceno-Constantinople Creed, much more accurate term, was a large version of a, the Creed of Nicaea, which was promulgated at the Council of Nicaea. It was further assumed that the enlargement had been carried out by the Council of Constantinople with the subject of bringing the Creed of Nicaea up to date in regard to heresies about the Incarnation and the Holy Spirit that had arisen since the Council of Nicaea. See, they, something else rose up they had to argue about. So they began that debate. Additional discoveries of documents in the 20th century, however, indicated that the situation was more complex and the actual development of the Niceno-Constantinople Creed had been the subject of scholarly dispute. Most likely, it was issued by the Council of Constantinople, even though this fact was first explicitly stated at the Council of Chaldean in 451. It was probably based on a baptismal creed already in existence, but it was an independent document and not an enlargement of the Nicene Creed. This so-called Latin philoque and the sun, which means and the sun, inserted after the words, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, was gradually introduced as part of the creed of Western Church beginning in the 6th century. It was probably finally accepted by the uh, papacy popes in the 11th century. You see how all this evolved from basically false scriptures, not knowing the scriptures, not rightly dividing them. They just took them and threw them out of these councils. And it ended up being the Catholic Church. You see, they, they did not know, know the scriptures when it says Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, they just twisted the words around, Jesus Christ is God the Son. <laughs> How do they get away with that? My seventh grade English teacher would flunk me. for If I went up to her and I said, well, Jesus Christ, here it says he's the Son of God. Can I switch it and say God the Son and be the same thing? She would flunk me. She'd give me a big F in my class. These people got away with these verbal gymnastics they use. All this changes in the verbal arrangement of words that is so deceptive and they acted so high and mighty and above the regular believers that they just went along with it. It was probably finally accepted by the papacy in the 11th century. I said that the Nicene Creed was originally written in Greek. Its principal liturgical use is in the context of the Eucharist in, West, in the West and in the context of both baptism and the Eucharist in the East. A modern English version of the text is as follows. Okay, now where do you get a load of these words that they put together to call it the new doctrine of the Nicene Creed? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. That, there's the first big old leap into assumption. He was born before all ages. 
born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light. I couldn't bring myself to say those words, God from God. True God from true God. Begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. You see, they think he pre-existed all this time before he came to earth and was born of a woman. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became a man. The word incarnate is not even in the Bible. Get this incarnate out of your vocabulary. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again the third day. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and the kingdom will have no end. I believe the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and Son, who with the Father and Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Well, that's the summary of the Council of Nicaea. Now, let's go to the Council of Constantinople. I hope this is not as detailed. I know this detail and this historical records can clog your mind up a little bit, but we'll try to set it free. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the uh, Council of Constantinople where they finalize and really put the three of them as one God. This is where the Trinity was really formulated and created. In January 381, the Christian Roman Emperor Theodosius issued a creed, a formal letter to his prefect in the Danube provinces of Ilicrium, announcing that only acceptable form of Christianity centered on a trinity in which God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit were seen as of equal majesty. Now we've got the Holy Spirit up there as a person. Theodosius went on to condemn all other Christian beliefs, even the true Christian beliefs, which is the scriptures. Beliefs and heresies that would punish by both the, the state and the divine judgment of God. By July, the law had been extended across the whole Eastern Empire, and then in the 380s, to the west, within a few years, Theodosius had also moved to ban most forms of pagan worship in affecting, challenging the religious and spiritual activities of the majority of the subjects. It was pivotal moment in classical, indeed, European history. Never before in the Greek or Roman world had there been such a sweeping imposition of a single religious belief alongside the active suppression of alternatives. The only precedent comes from the ancient Egypt when Pharaoh Akhenaten replaced mass of Egyptian deities with the single sun god, Aten, in the 4th century B.C. 
and even this policy was quickly reversed by the successor. Theodosius' decrees were especially startling because less than 60 years earlier in 313, the Emperor Constantine had issued with his co-emperor, Licinius, the Edict of Toleration. Toleration means they put up with everything, in which he promised not one that no one whatsoever should be denied freedom to devote himself either to the cult of the Christians or to the religion as he deems best suited for himself. As late as the 360s, the principal freedom of speech and thought were being proclaimed by the court orders as essential for health society. Theodosius was not himself a fanatical Christian, and despite the harshness of the language in which his decrees were expressed, he showed some restraint and flexibility in the way he applied them. In a vast, administratively wielding empire, any law lost its impact as it filtered down into the provinces, and many, and, and some may never have been systematically enforced. However, this worked both ways. The law might be ignored or it might be imposed with brutality by a local enthusiast. Several of Theodosius' Christian officials, particularly those he bought or brought with him into the Eastern Empire from the West, acted with a ruthless that the emperor could not condone. Many launched violent attacks on pagan shrines and their opponents. Whatever the emperor had intended, the free discussion of spiritual matters was constrained to the Christian world for centuries to come. The Roman legal system was adopted as to be able to target and remove dissidents, whether pagan or Christian. With the collapse of the empire in the West, the church took over the powers of the state. Did you hear that? The church and state became one. They took over the powers of the state in which it had acquiesced under Theodosius. And by the 12th century church, the state where church and state were again united in suppressing freedom of religious thought. One has to wait until the 7th century before the principle of religious toleration so deeply rooted a part of the ancient society was reasserted in Rome and Europe. The story as this book hopes to show, it is well documented, but an alternative narrative of the church itself came to a consensus on the nature of the Godhead. Is still the dominant one in histories of Christianity. The consensus approach glosses over the violent antagonism and debate over doctrine. So... The consensus approach glosses over the violent antagonism, the debate over doctrine aroused, and the preeminent role of the emperors played in their resolution. Again, there is a seldom and any mention in this alternative narrative of the other intellectual and spiritual traditions, many of which were rooted in the use of reason that withered as a result of the emperor's interventions. In the 380s were truly a turning point, and the story of how freedom and thought were suppressed needs to be brought back into mainstream of the history of European thought. This is what this book aims to do. 
That's by Charles Freeman, the author of the book. Now what ensued was the final stages that I have documented that resulted in idolatry. Rome went from one God, Christian, following to the idolatry of the man-made trinity. It's as simple as that. It was in 381. What ensued was the final stages that I have documented that resulted in idolatry, and Rome went from one God, Christian, following to the idolatry of a man-made trinity. Following pages document the history of the identical fall of Israel as well as will befall America if we continue this false religion as our God. Not only helped establish the Trinity as the Orthodox doctrine, but it made belief in it a requirement for salvation and anathemized those who reject it, as well as evident in the bold portions of the text that follows. That we worship one God in Trinity. You see how this is evolving now? We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, one of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. Look what they did. They just took this and took it right out of the Word and made up their own words and their own religion. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. Look what they do with words. As also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Ghost is almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. I mean, if you you walk, you read this now, you're confused. Your head is spinning. Trinitarians don't don't know this. Is is written this is what they believe. They just think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm a Trinitarian. But this is what you're supposed to believe if you're a Trinitarian. How in the name of God can they put these words together like this? Be a Trinitarian and not know the foundational belief system of it. The uh, theologians do, the upper echelon, the upper students of theology schools who are now preaching in churches, they have to go along with this or they'll be ostracized from the other churches and they can't collect money. (laughs) So the Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, and they are not three but one. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, there be three gods, or three lords. The Father has made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, but not made nor created, but 
begotten. The Holy Ghost is the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, the Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in the Trinity, none is a four or after other, none is greater or lesser than the other, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and so co-eternal and co-eternal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. That's, that's, that's just an idol, people. It's nothing more than words to describe an idol that they created. The, the Trinity, look at it this way. The Trinity is the golden calf of Christianity. It's, a, it's their idol. And in the Trinity, none is a four. After four, I could keep on reading. It's just, uh, here I'll go to the last sentence. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's bunk. He was born. Uh, he was born. Begotten. The first begotten means born, birth. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. That's what pulls my hair out. He is both God and man. God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds and man of the substance of his mother born in the world. This creed not only helped establish the Trinity as the orthodox doctrine, but it made belief in it a requirement for salvation and anathemized or eliminated those who rejected it, as will be evident in the bold portions of the text that follows. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do, keep the whole and undefiled without doubt, he will perish everlastingly. They, they threatened him with God's judgment of perishing. They just made it up. God is not, he's, he's going to make you perish. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the person nor dividing the substance. There is one person of the Father and of the Son and another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, Holy Spirit, is all one. The glory equal majesty, co-eternal, such as the Father is, is, is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. And the Father uncreate. Well, there are over 2 billion church members who attend denominations with this statement of belief as the cornerstone of their faith. You see, these Christians consider the Trinity the cornerstone and the foundation of their beliefs. They are not Christians. They are Trinitarians. If you're going to confess the Trinity, then you're not a Christian. You're a Trinitarian. And it's simple. One way. Ask, is Jesus Christ God or is he the Son of God? If they say he's God, they're a Trinitarian. You're not a Christian. There are over 2 billion church members who attend denominations with this statement of belief as a cornerstone. Uh, every statement of belief I look at when I'm online, and they are all the same. Uh, the Trinitarian formula is in their statement of belief. 
And if you're running a church that doesn't have the Trinitarian formula as your basic statement of belief, they will call you a cult. They'll call you heretical. They will mock you. They will harass you. They will not tell, uh, tell people not to go to your church. Read the statement of belief of every church site in America. It's there. Here again are the identical stages that befell Rome, turning from the true God, just as Israel did. And so I will be back in a moment with the one true God and the five stages of the fall of the Roman Empire. Mr. Guy Sweeney's short here, but we got to make moving to make it within a time frame that we usually try to, which is one hour. So, right now I'm going to go through the first stage, division. The fate of Western Rome was partially sealed in the late 3rd century, actually before they went to this council of Constantinople in 381, when the emperor Diocletian divided the empire into 
halves with the Western Empire seated in the city of Milan and the Eastern Empire in Byzantium, later known as Constantinople. The division made empire most easily governable in the short term, but over time, the two halves drifted apart. East and West failed to adequately work together to combat outside threats and to often squabble over resources of military aid. As the Gulf widened, the largely Greek-speaking Eastern Empire grew in wealth while the Latin-speaking West descended into economic crisis. Most importantly, the strength of the Eastern Empire served to divert barbarian invasions in the West. Emperors like Constantine ensured that the city of Constantinople was fortified and well-guarded by but Italy and the city of Rome, which only had a symbolic value for many in the East, were left vulnerable. The Western political structure would come finally disintegrate in the 5th century, which would be 475 AD, which is what they put it at. But the Eastern Empire endured some form or another thousand years before overwhelmed by the Ottoman Empire. Really what took place was the fall of Rome is considered in 475 AD. This other, what happened was, is the, the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire. That's what I'll say. They were run by the Pope, run by the church. It was the Holy Roman Empire. So there was no really Roman Empire. It fell at 475 AD and the Dark Ages ensued after that. Now, this other step, there was the Council of Nicaea, 325, which explains the division before the, they could declare Jesus as God, which is idolatry. After that period, Christians became less persecuted and grew with the exception of those who acquiesced to the Nicaean Creed and those who followed. Explains the division before they declared Jesus as God. And Nicene Creed and those who followed the way in verbal scriptures still taught in the fellowships and the manifestation of Holy Spirit. So the true Christians were carrying on in the homes, but they were not part of the Catholic Church. The abomination of the children, the sexual molestation of boys, nuns, children at the altar of the popes, the bishops, didn't start in the 20th century. <laughs> when it came out in the papers. It's been practiced in the pagan Trinitarian church since its inception, which idolatry comes, with idolatry comes the abomination of the children. You can also say the abomination of the children we hear have been practicing, and it's called abortion. And they take the child's parts, and they do rituals with them. Stage three, the hordes of barbarians, invasions by barbarian tribes. Western Rome's collapse pins the fall on a string of military losses sustained against the outside forces. Rome had tangled with Germanic tribes for centuries, but by the 300s, barbarian groups like the Goths, G-O-T-H-S, had encroached beyond the empire's borders. Romans withered weather germanic the german uprising in the late fourth century but in 410 the Vishgoth king alaric successfully sacked the city of rome so in 410 he sacked the city of rome the empire spent the next several decades under constant threat 
before the eternal city was raided again in 455, this time by the Vandals. Finally, in 476, the German leader starts with an O, stage a revolt, and depose the emperor Romulus Augustus. From then on, no Roman, no Roman emperor would ever again rule from a post in Italy, leading many to cite 476 as the year the Western Empire suffered its death blow. Now, the arrival of the Huns and the migration of barbarian tribes. The barbarian attacks on Rome partially stemmed from a mass migration caused by the Huns' invasion of Europe in the late 4th century. When these Eurasian warriors rampaged through northern Europe, they drove many Germanic tribes to the borders of the Roman Empire. The Romans grudgingly allowed members of these uh, Visigoth tribe to cross south in the Danube and safely in Roman territory, but they treated them with extreme cruelty. According to the historian Marcellinus, Roman officials even forced the starving Goths to trade their children into slavery in exchange for dog meat. Oh, my God. In brutalizing the Goths, the Romans created a dangerous enemy within their own borders. When the oppression became too much to bear, the Goths rose up in revolt and eventually routed a Roman army and killed the eastern emperor Valens during the Battle of Adrianople. 378, the shocked Romans negotiated a flimsy peace and barbarians, but the truce unraveled in 410 when Goth king Alaric moved west and sacked Rome. With the Western Empire weakened, Germanic tribes like the Vandals, that must be where we get the word vandalism, and the Saxons were able to surge across the borders and occupy Britain, Spain, and North Africa. The fourth stage, the rise and expansion of sodomy. It was a sign. It was the barometer, so to speak, that we were near the end or close to the end itself. Homo and uh, sodomy in the ancient Rome often differs markedly from the contemporary West. Latin lacks words and would precisely translate as heterosexual or homosexual, and the primary dichotomy of ancient Rome sexuality was active, dominant, and masculine, and passive, submissive, and feminine. Roman society was patriarchal, and the freeborn male citizen possessed political liberties and the right to both himself and his household. In other words, it was all up for sodomy was accepted as well as heterosexuality. Prostitutes and entertainers whose lifestyle placed them in the nebulous social realm of infamia, excluded from the normal protections accorded to citizens, even if they were technically free. After the Roman men in general seemed to have preferred youth between the ages of 12 and 20 as sexual partners, freeborn male minors were off limits at the certain periods of Rome, so this predominated their society. Stage five, we're almost done. The most straightforward theory for the Western Rome's collapse pins the fall on a string of military bases sustained against outside forces. Rome has tangled with Germanic tribes for centuries. If you watch the beginning of the movie Gladiator, 
he goes up against those Germanic tribes. And it's a fantastic scene in that movie. He says, give them hell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but by the 300s, barbarian groups like the Goths had encroached beyond the empire's borders. The Romans weathered a Germanic uprising in the late 4th century, but in Visigoth, King Alaric successfully sacked the city of Rome. The empire spent the next several decades under constant threat by the Eternal City. So finally in 476, I rounded off to 475, the Germanic staged a revolt and deposed the emperor. So this is the stage four result was the loss of treasury when they sacked Rome. And I'm going to make my final statement regarding this. The Dark Ages and medieval rulers within one generation, within one generation of the pagan Trinitarian religion declared as orthodoxy the Roman church thousand years followed and they called this fall this thousand years that followed the fall of Rome the dark ages that period will be covered next in this series well I thought I had time to read these verses from scripture about worshiping any other god but the true god you can read them in the Ten Commandments in the early sections of the Bible in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Let me pick out just, if I can find this chapter, bear with me. I want to read. It's just so obvious. And it's a chapter in this book called Idolatry and Superstition. Idolatry and Superstition. Fallen man. Well, I don't find it right now, but... But the words from the scripture make it clear. I am the Lord thy God. I alone created the heavens and the earth, and there shall be no other gods before me. Now, is he talking about fame, sex, glory? No, David David performed most of those sins, but he wasn't, Israel didn't get divided. He was always worshiping the one true God. It was his son Solomon who God warned about these strange women. These strange means they worship other gods. And so that's when Israel and divided from Judah and became separated. That was their division. So you can go back and read the part one, and this is part two, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And I find it fascinating that not one, not one, Trinitarian can tell you the history of how they got to where they are. And so this has been your host, Misty Guide. Thank you for bearing with me for that technical, historical jargon, which is what it is. And next week will be the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages followed, and man, it was dark. It was dark, and Ravi has written extensively on our FB post... Maybe he can vote, uh, post it in the chat room, the FB page that has the, called the tyranny of the Trinity. The Trinity was definitely a tyranny in Europe. They burned people at the stake, people, for not believing in it. Michael Servetus is a famous one. There were other people who were being burned at the stake for not believing it as late as the 1600s. That's when our founding fathers decided to get out of there and start America. And our Constitution was given by revelation because they refused to worship 
those gods and worshiped the one true God. 55 men who did not believe in that tyranny of the Trinity came together. God gave them the revelation, and that Constitution is pretty well held up all these years. And you can see the word God in it everywhere, that we are created equal. So our founding fathers established America, and America was one of the few countries that could grow and feed itself could prosper. Look how we prospered all these years. But remember, there was a, when you when you get away from the true God and get to the God of the Trinity, the first stage is what division. So the Jesuits snuck back in our country after we have rejected the Trinity and infiltrated the church with the Trinitarian philosophy again, and that began the Civil War. And that divided our country like no other. So division happened to us. That'll be explained in the fall of America after we talk about the Dark Ages. God bless you, Tea Party. Thank you for this new change. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you this time next week. You are in tune to Enlightenment Radio, home of the ultimate knowledge of body, soul, and spirit and unlimited music 24-7. 